One, let's go ahead and get started. It's six o'clock and we will uh, begin, uh, continue with our Wednesday night Bible study. This Wednesday night we're in Psalm 17. So if you all just go ahead in your copy of God's Word, find Psalm 117, excuse me, Psalm 17. And we're going to look at um, a handful of verses there in Psalm 17. We'll read all 15 of them though. So let's go ahead and read and then we will pray together and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take a look at Psalm 17. In Psalm 17, verse 1, David writes, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my, to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart and you have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man by the word of your lips. I have avoided the ways of, violent, of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I, will, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity with their mouths. They speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. And they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come, God and to share in the scriptures with my brothers and my sisters, Father God. I thank you for this church, Father God. I thank you for their, their loving embrace, Father God, for their depth of prayer, Father God, for their openness to take in anyone, Father God, whom the Lord sends our way. And I ask you, please, God, that we would continue to grow into becoming more and more church like that, Father God. I pray for those of us, Lord, who are unable to be here tonight, Lord. I pray, Father God, a speedy recovery, that they're, that they're quickly back with us, Father. And I pray, Father God, that you continue to protect this body of believers, Father, from anything that would attack us. Lord, we, we praise you and we thank you, Father God. Make our church, Father God, a shining light of the gospel for others to see. In the name of Christ Jesus, Lord, I humbly pray. Amen. Um, you know, verse 1 offers the initial hope and the restraining condition for a world of justifiable turmoil. So, again, as, as we just kind of watch what's going on around us, as we understand how, how uh, difficult the world is right now, I'm, I'm thankful now for this journey through the Psalms because it seems like every time weekly that I turn to the Psalms to prepare this, it kind of matches or, or leads me to conclusions about the world that I see around us. And so there's, a, there's turmoil, turmoil. And I, and I said, I guess these are my words, not, not God's words, justifiable in some ways. I get why the world is in the condition it is. I'm not going to say that everything that anyone does outside right now that we might see on television 
is justifiable. But, but the angst and the frustration, the anger, I get a lot of it. I understand that. I want to now apply biblical truth to it. Um, David writes in verse 1, he says, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. So what David does is that when we have some type of a, a grievance, for lack of a better word, we have some type of a situation like that. David says, gives us in verse 1, I believe three prerequisites for the intervention of God in our struggles. So we want to know, is God going to take an active part as God is always in sovereignty, but in direct action of God? Hey, Lane, get this one right here, man. Okay, you can get this chair, okay? It's just sitting there waiting for you, okay? Um, so these prerequisites for us, so we know that, we know that when, these, when these elements are true, that God is going to take that type of sovereign interest in our, uh, in our pleas that we want Him to. Now one is, is this, it's bound by three conditions. One is because our Lord is a righteous and just God who's bound by His perfection, we must have a just cause in petitioning Christ for His help. And I think that's one of those things that maybe we've all run into. We've run into situations where we wanted God's help so desperately Sometimes we didn't have a just cause. Now, this is easy and dumb, and I know some people are going to quickly reject it because we're mostly adults in this room, but I bet all of us remembers doing this one. Some of you are such brilliant um, intellects that you never had to do this. Others of you are like me and showed up for a test and forgot there was a test and therefore did not study at all for yon test. Anybody ever been through that? Did anybody ever therefore turn around and pray, God, please make me smarter than I really am? Yes, everybody's prayed that desperate prayer to survive a test that we hadn't studied. Either, I mean, either we forgot it. Now, some people in this room, I, they shall remain nameless for my lips, just didn't study at all for the test. At all. Um, it wasn't Russ. I was thinking about Russ, okay? So... Russ has confessed something I did not know. The, per the person I was thinking of is not at the front of the room, but in the back. And he's laughing right now. Um, that did not study and then still pray, God, please let me pass this test so that my mama won't get mad. Was probably the prayer, okay? Was probably the prayer. Um, I think that's one of those in which we don't have, to be honest with you, we don't have a just cause. Um, if I wanted to pass the test, then I would have studied for the test. God's not really on the hook to make up for my laziness. If I'm sick, God, I can petition God for sickness. If there's family strife, I can petition God for family strife. But there are going to be causes that we take to the attention of the Lord that simply put, we didn't, we can do it and we still can, can go to our God. But, but if God does not does not make me, enable me to pass a test that quite bluntly I didn't care enough about to study for, that I really can't go back to God and have some type of an accusation against a righteous and just God. Now, if at some point in your life he saved your bacon, guys, from a test, great. I'm proud for you. But he was not required because it wasn't a just cause. 
And, and that, I think those are David's words. Hear a just cause. God want, David wants God to hear his cause because David believes his cause is just. But what else? Although he knows exactly what our needs are at all times, God commands that we seek his will and his aid by way of a relational prayer. So therefore, we must cry out to the Lord so that he will hear. God acts on our behalf constantly in ways that we're not aware that we need his help. God protects us when we journey into this world because more often than not, we don't know that we need his protection. Probably if we saw how our steps would have lined up without the intervention of God, we would be shocked on a day-to-day -day basis. How many times our life could have just simply been snatched away from us that God in His willingness to intervene on behalf of His children has intervened for us in a way that did not require prayer. Simply put, we didn't know that we needed prayer at that time. He just did it for us. He helped us in a way. However, when we know there's a need, God has organized His sovereign will in such a way that, that, that He desires that we pray to Him in a relational way. He knows what we need. He meets our needs. Prayer is good for us in ways that don't just produce blessings. Prayer is good for us in ways that encourage the fellowship that we have with our Lord. I don't have to, by the words of the Scriptures, pray to God for my daily bread because He knows my needs and He is set his heart to provide my daily, bread, my daily bread. It is good for my relationship that I pray to God for daily bread. So when there is a need, a just cause, God requires that we go to him in prayer because that's the way his sovereign will works. But what else? Our last one. Our prayer must come to God without lies and half-truths. David says that. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. So, now, I, I don't think that most people who go to our Lord in prayer, um, who, who may not even have a just cause, are purposely trying to pull the wool over their Lord's eyes. I think in this room right now, we have spent so much time in the Scriptures in our lives, so much time studying and being taught the Scriptures. We understand that God's simply not going to bless us if we are wrong about something. He may bless us with repentance. He may bless us with a kindly rebuke from a loving friend. He may do that, but the reality is He's not going to bless us if we are wrong and we never admit we are wrong. The issue I believe that, that David addresses in this is when we are deceiving the only person in this relationship that can really be deceived, and that is ourselves. That's, that's us. The, the Lord our God is ignorant of nothing. And therefore, He cannot be lied to. You can try. And many of us have spent glorious times in our lives trying to lie to the living God and failing at it miserably. He knows everything. He, we can't lie to Him. He can't be lied to. But He still demands that we are honest concerning our prayers and our desire for His intervention. If I view the world through my own perspective, if I paint it in such a way that it agrees with me, and I don't see it through the harsh reality of the truth, then I only successfully lie to myself. 
and Christ will not reward my self-deception. So that if I'm, if I'm in the midst of turmoil, if I'm in the midst of chaos or attack, or if there are obstacles in my way, the thing that God demands is that I just be honest with me. Now, I'm saying that because I realize that throughout the decades that I have been blessed to be in the ministry and brothers to counsel others, occasionally, a couple of times in the hundreds of times, I've been dragged into interpersonal relationships, whether they are marriages or just between brothers or between sisters. Occasionally, a couple of times in that, in that pretty long career, I can honestly say, man, this person was almost totally wrong. And this one was almost totally right. More often than not, there's plenty of right and plenty of wrong on both sides, aren't there? Hey, look, I, I'm not gonna, I'll be the first to tell you that my, uh, my marriage has not always been the smoothest sailing in the world. We've had to work at our marriage. God has blessed it abundantly. But we've worked very hard to be married. One of the things I can say is this. There's never been a conflict between myself and my wife, and, and this is not revealing anything, that was not the fault of both of us. That's the way interpersonal relationships work. We're always both at fault. And we can point fingers all we want. It doesn't solve anything. What Christ is promoting in this is complete honesty whenever we are dealing with problems. If I've got a problem right now, the current issue is race. That's the biggest issue we're facing right now, is the issue of race in the United States. And to be honest with you, I'm 52 years old, and it's pretty much been the biggest issue every year of my life. We have never outgrown that issue. Well, here's the reality. The reality is, is if I'm going to make progress in this, I've got to be personally introspective. I can't just look at others and decide what their problem is. I've got to decide whether I've got a problem or not. I've got to really surrender myself to an idea I have a problem with this. Am I wrong about this issue? Because there's no growth. Christ can intervene, but there's no growth. There's no solution until I repent. If repentance is required and I refuse to repent, there simply is no solution. For any person or group who feels victimized, attacked or oppressed, the reality is that perception is probably Accurate. Most of the time when we feel like we're being oppressed or attacked or marginalized, it's probably true. You know, some of us are kind of slow on the uptake, but most of us, if somebody doesn't like you, get it pretty fast, don't we? Some people have no self-awareness at all, and they never figure out that people don't like them. Those people are blissfully happy. Most of the rest of us are so filled with angst naturally that we always get it when somebody doesn't like us. You know, we always get that. Unfortunately, the complete truth is expressed by Paul in Romans 7.18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So therefore, we're going to take one, you know, from this idea of self-deception to an idea of being real, being truthful with ourselves. We're going to take the next step over, which is that not only are there people in this world who don't like me, but looking at myself, I don't understand why I like myself at all. Paul's words are abundantly clear. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the right to do what I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I am so evil that I can know the right way, but yet I have no ability to do the right thing. 
It's Paul speaking of himself, but it is an extrapolation to every single one of us in the Christian walk who, who seek Christ. We have no ability to do right. Look, the real hope locked in this passage is not an accusation or confrontation. Both actions may be required and fruitful. There are going to be times, the Bible records them, there are going to be times when people were wrong and others called them down. If we are, as believers in Christ, if we are made aware of heresy, it is our duty to call attention to heresy, to warn others away from the preaching of heretical false doctrines. It is absolutely our duty. I mean, accusation and confrontation can be absolutely fruitful. The Bible does not force us away from those things. Even for somebody like myself who's non-confrontational. Confrontation is still a healthy part of Christian dialogue. And it happens between brothers and sisters who love each other all the time. But an acknowledgement of the fact that we are totally corrupted, utterly broken, and absolutely helpless without the justification of Christ. So let's say that again. First off, if we have a time of turmoil in this nation, who's at fault? Every man, woman, and child are at fault. Because we're all broken. We're all broken. If left to our own devices, we will all destroy those things that we love. We are helpless without the justification of Christ. We are helpless in our sin unless Christ Jesus intervenes for us. Paul teaches in Romans 6.4, We are buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, so here's the thing, is that in this destruction of our flesh, or destruction that, that is in our flesh, that we see in Romans 7, 18, back in Romans 6, 4, Paul offers the answer to that, being buried with Christ by baptism in a death, in order that through this, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So in the end, I want to just want to addend them very quickly. The final goal is always the same. The walking in newness of life. That God is not just saving us for fire insurance. He's not just saving us so that we can avoid hell. He's saving us so that we can all, as the church now, Walk in newness of life. So that all those old things that made us up, that were part and parcel with who we are, all those things can now be part of our past and not part of our present or poisoning our future. We can be different people. Newness of life. But now look, problematic verse though. On the surface, casual readers can assume that Paul says something about the sacrament of baptism that he's not saved. This is one of those troublesome passages. It's not really troublesome. It's just the fact that people get it wrong. Simply put, they get it wrong. Paul uses it metaphorically. And I know we're always scared of that stuff. Because we're scared to say that somebody might use something as a symbol of something else. But yet Christ Jesus constantly goes back to the Old Testament. 
and uses Old Testament reality as present symbolism. Something else. Jonah in the belly of a whale. Symbolic of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Jonah's just as much a reality. But it pales in comparison to a far greater truth that Christ uses the whale to represent. Jews metaphorically, as he writes in verse 3, said, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Who have, excuse me, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul elevates the notion of born-again salvation by describing it in the best, in the, in the deepest way he can. As an immersion into the person of Jesus Christ for salvation. Baptized into Christ Jesus. Not into water, but into Christ himself. Immersed into Christ Jesus. Not a proclamation pronounced when the symbol of water baptism is bestowed on a person but the reality of a believer who has been completely immersed in their Lord and Savior. A believer who has lost themselves in Jesus. Who has given everything over to their Lord. Not something any man can accomplish, but the divine action of being born of water and spirit, of seeing the old man fall and the new man rise. Of experiencing the renewal of mind, body, spirit, and life. Which comes only from blood-bought salvation. And surrender to the life-changing and eternity-affirming gospel. Not a single action. That some mistakenly will believe. A single action in water. But a dramatic overhaul of who the person is. Heart, mind, spirit, now radically different, enslaved to Christ. Look, what we see around us today is the devastating effect of the evil that dwells in us. The Apostle adds in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole world, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Everything we see around us subjected to futility. The world more so now than ever in, in recent memory. We turn the dial and we see futility everywhere. The creation around us is the illustration of the decimation of the world. And the adulteration of the human heart by sin. When we look at the world, we understand the depth of sin. We don't, we don't curse those individual sinners... But we understand that what we see right now is only possible because hearts continue to be enslaved to sin and not enslaved to Christ. We understand that, that born-again salvation is still not present in so many of the lives we see. While we strive for justice and plead for the protection and the 
inalienable rights of those who are victimized by government, culture, and society. Each believer must understand that the world around us is doomed without the only opportunity for meaningful change, the gospel. So it seems such a long thing to say one thing. Such a long passage to say one thing. The answer to the world we see is the gospel. And there is no other answer. There's nothing else that will correct the problems, the endemic problems, the heart problems. Nothing else. Neither the far left communism nor the far right fascism offer anything other than the madness of collectivism and the reality of wholesale slaughter on a national scale. It's always keeping that this is the most political I'm ever going to get in your presence. But as these things are bandied around, now what seems so funny is that in the United States we can take something that we understand to be so serious, like fascism or communism, and act as if it's a fun, it's a joke. Only in the United States can we make jokes of those things. Because we've always enjoyed what we have now. Stable democracy. We've always enjoyed that. But we do that nowadays. You hear those words that as, if, as if this is a solution. Communism is a solution. Or fascism is a solution. Examine 20th century history. That's all I have to say. You, you know what? Here's the thing. If we dug deep enough in the Bible, we'd understand those things are losing propositions. But we don't have to. Look back at the 20th century. The year of the, 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 the century of murder. The Nazis killed six to eight million, and they were, and these ideologies were just getting started. Atrocity after atrocity. That's what those two collective governmental systems lead to. And the reason I say that is not because I would promote one way or the other. Not because if, if this country became communist tomorrow or fascist tomorrow, it would change our goal. It would not. Our mission would be the same. Win the world to Christ. And it wouldn't matter. We would just get to labor like many martyrs have under the same oppression that martyrs have throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. But I say that because no governmental system is an answer to what we see. It's only the gospel. When confronted with the vile attributes of a government and parties which fail their citizens, the answer is not more, better, less, or newer forms of governmental systems. The government's not the problem. It's not at all. Is it evil? Of course it is. Because they're all man-made systems and they're all evil. If you change it tomorrow, you're going to adopt another evil one. Maybe more evil than what you have already. The true response is a different source of security, a different source of joy, a different source of provision, and a different source of hope. As David writes in verse 2, From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. The only source of justice and the sole foundation of a more fair society is in Christ Jesus and never in attempting to right perceived wrongs. The government is not the answer. Legislation is not the answer. 
Courts and laws and lawyers are never the answer. Never the answer. Jesus is the only answer. Societies have tried and failed, succeeding only in acting out of festering rage leading to more atrocity. Solomon provides a glimpse of what the difference must be, considering that he was on both sides of his own statement. Proverbs 29 verse 2, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. He was both of those in his own time. In his young days, he was a righteous ruler and the people flourished. In his old days, he was a wicked ruler and the people suffered. Only the gospel can produce a particular people who are so in tune with the expression, expressed will, and purpose of God that they can be a counterpoint to the vile and despicable actions of the wicked. What's the answer? The gospel produces more God-honoring, God-fearing people. Increase the number of God-honoring, God-fearing people in your nation and you'll be ruled by more righteous people. The solution isn't to change the system. It's to change those who are being ruled. Chesterton saw in, in his time the seed of ours. He described his world, I think it's just like ours, as a product of old Christian values gone mad because they've been isolated from one another and are wandering alone. So, so take Christianity as Jefferson tried to and peel off of it, uh, peel off of it, the uh, soteriology, peel, peel off of it the ability to save and just give us moral teaching. Take the moral teaching of the Bible and isolate them from the truth of the Bible, from the change of the Bible. And what do you get? You get moralistic madness. That's all you get. You get nothing. You've robbed the Bible of the ability to remake people into the image of what Christ is trying to describe through morality. The Bible's not a book of acting better. It's a book of being radically changed so you can be better. Justice is a Christian virtue. And we must never disassociate ourselves from it. So is the protection of the weak, providing for the poor, and therefore regarding every man and woman as having worth as created in the image of God. Those are Christian values. But we see them perverted. To model this for the world, we learn from the negative example in verse 10, which says, They close their mouths to pity, but their mouth, with their mouths they speak, excuse me, they close their hearts to pity, with their mouths they speak arrogantly. So, so David addresses us in this passage. It still behooves us not to react falsely, not to react without the honor and glory of God to the world we see around us. We are still people who will have pity on those who suffer. We'll do that. Our hearts should be open to the suffering around us. It's not the position of the church that suffering is merely a self-imposed condition. Because I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of people in the world and the world of the church who think the poor had it coming. Who've closed their hearts to the poor. And what's so shocking is many of them were poor. Grew up poor. But the mercy that was extended to them, they simply cannot extend to others. They have closed their hearts in pity and they've opened their mouths now in arrogance. The heart which beats for the Lord of salvation also beats for His creation in disrepair. Poverty is part of this repair of the creation of God. We have it because the earth is cursed. 
We have it because of the curse of sin, the stain of sin. Poverty is endemic to humanity and it is the fault of humanity. All humanity. Not just the poor. Not just the poor. Pity and humility are a biblical reaction to the world, not harshness and arrogance. So in other words, one of the things we have to do is church that examine ourselves, get our hearts right. These positions lead back to Christ and not away from His presence. However, good things taken in isolation from the gospel of redemption lead to idolatry and insanity. So that's what we see right now is that we've seen good things that the Bible, that the Bible talks about separated away from salvation. And now they're becoming an idol. Curing poverty has become a liberal idol. Anti-racism has become a liberal idol. We can fight against poverty, we fight against racism all we want to. As long as hearts are corrupted, they will lash out in corrupt ways. It may not be in poverty, it may not be in racism, but it will be in something else. Because corrupt hearts are going to always act corruptly. Always act in corruption. Those are symptoms and not diseases. Symptoms of hearts that are untamed by the gospel. If we see people as having worth, but deny the God whose image bestows essential worth, then we are making people the humanistic deity of our culture. And it's exactly what we see around us. Devolving into the rankest humanism. People are worth something. But because there's no God to lend them worth, now all of their actions are equal. As we were talking today, people have come to the conclusion that if you're angry enough, you can do whatever you want. If you're angry enough, there are no laws. It's madness. It's insanity. It's the death of a culture that makes that decision. The pitfalls and the path that we trod in this century lead to self-worship, indulgence, and a disregard of the only truth which can save our land. The hope for this land is not in the good things that Christ held up, but in the person of Jesus Christ. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the blood of Jesus Christ. And in His power to save human souls. In verse 15, David closes this psalm by saying, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I wake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The satisfaction that we find as individuals, a church, and as a society depends on our ability to see the nature and character of God through the righteous change in our earthly lives. When this happens, when our lives happens, when our lives begin to reflect the internal change in our hearts and the source, Jesus of new life, heart, and mind, then we will be satisfied in who God truly is. We'll be satisfied. We'll be satisfied when we see the righteous remaking of our lives into the image of God. That's when we're satisfied. How? How does this happen? Back in verses 3 through 5, they teach this. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me and you will find nothing. I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. 
My feet have not slipped. David outlines our hope in three salvos. First, being tried and tested by God Himself. Now, I say that because I think I understand um, people fairly well, especially brothers and sisters in the church. I know that even in the church, most of us are not very willing to take our mind and our heart and our deeds and our words and submit them to the gaze of God. We spend a lot of time praying that we're acting justly, that we're acting righteously, that all of our attitudes and all of our, that all of our ideas are in line with the Scripture, but we don't surrender those things very often. And what David is saying very clearly is, submit yourself to be tested by God. I mean, he's testing us anyway. But so you surrender yourself to the testing of God. That if God's not revealing to us our own sin and our own shortcomings, I think that's one of the hardest things to deal with when you talk to people, especially through their Christian walk. And that is, some people come to you overwhelmed by sin so much, it's like every time, everywhere they look, they see their own failings. And some people come and they find a very hard time finding their own failings. And, and I'm, I'm, sometimes it's difficult for me to draw a line from if I'm the A, there the B, to draw a line, brothers, to get there. Because I think I'm on the other page. I see everything I do as a failure and everything, do, and everything I do as a betrayal of my God. And I would say this, that if one of those things, if we're not seeing enough sin in our lives, we are not surrendering ourselves to the testing of God. Surrender yourself to the testing of God. He will show you. Surrender yourself. Now, maybe, and I think maybe one of the issues is, is that a lot of people spend a lot of time looking into the Scriptures for affirmation. Don't go there for affirmation. I'll be honest with you, go there for condemnation. Go there for God to show you every time you fail. Don't be fearful of the testing of God. It is generous and it is loving. The king insists that we surrender ourselves daily to the examination of God. That we desire for him to find and point out our weaknesses. And that we use progressive repentance to deal with our personal issues. That there, There's the issue right there. Is that our repentance that was offered at salvation is progressive repentance. We don't just repent once. We continue to repent throughout our lives. We never get to the point where we stop. We never get to the point where we're good. We're always going to be bad until our life ends, until death, which separates us from this sinful body, from the body of death, and then we await in the presence of God resurrection into a perfect body that is not, that is not a body of sin. We carry sin with us in our flesh. It's always going to be there. Progressive repentance deals with this and it draws us closer to God. Again, like prayer, it draws us closer. Next, make it a mission to refrain from offending the Lord and others with our mouths, is what he says. Beautiful, he says, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. I always take a minute to think about that. That's the hardest thing in the world to do. It's way easier to go have a say, have some prayer say, God, test me with everything you've got, God, than it is to not talk when we don't need to talk. 
And eat. Look, I know i got a big mouth. I talk a lot. And other people in this room have big mouths and talk a lot. Some of you never say anything. Every one of you, even the ones who never say anything, have still had a moment recently where you wished you had said nothing at all. Even the people who are really good at not talking still have said, stuck their foot in their mouth. The hardest thing in the world is to deal with that, the, that tongue. And, and for David, it was one of those marks of his faith where he said, I made up my mind I wasn't going to transgress God with my mouth. Especially in the tempest in which we currently live, the best thing may be to say as little as possible. Or as, as, as Brother Kyle and Brother Brian and I talk about all the time, actually this is not my truth, it came from another pastor, but we adopted, here's our truth, is that we always have prepared answers. Never fly off the cuff. It's better to say nothing than to say something you hadn't really thought about and really prayed about. Have a prepared answer. Write something down and read it. It's always better than trying to stumble your way through it. Always better. Pray over every syllable. Because the best thing to do may be to say nothing at all. Now is not the time to, to philosophize. But to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. is the Scripture's command. Now lastly, the final thing. Avoid the violent works of men. Physical, mental, and verbal, and plant your feet on the undeniable path of Christ illustrated in the Scriptures. That is exactly what David says. He says, I have avoided the ways of the violent. He just simply says, my path is going to be different. I know that to pursue Christ, my path isn't going to look like anybody else around me unless they are pursuing Christ too. If I'm the only saved person in my family, my path looks radically different. If I'm the only saved person in my friend group, my path looks radically different. And it may cost me family, and it may cost me friend group. And I'll be honest with you, pay a little bit of attention to the world, the, the greater world around us, where the gospel lands. There is example after example after example of young people who come to Christ and are forced to leave their families. Walk away. Because of the gospel. The path forward for believers is not going to look anything like the world around us. Nothing at all. It's not going to be physically like it. It's not going to be mentally like it. It's not going to be verbally like it. If Jesus commands something, we do that thing. That is our path forward. If he forbids it, we avoid it. Bottom line. Joining in the chorus of hate or anger which permeates the world on either side does not honor our Savior. It's maybe the most controversial thing I've said all night. Which is that in the current world in which we live, our path forward is a third path. It's not on one side or the other. It's on the side of Christ. Only by living in the light of His gospel... Can we be part of the change that this world needs? Only by living in the light of the gospel. So what does the church do in response to everything we see around us? Be gospel light for the world. That's our job.
Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach. And I pray, Father God, that I have preached rightly, Father. I pray, Father God, that I have not shared anything, God, that has not been mulled over and prayed over, Father God. And I also pray, Father God, that, that I did not preach without energy, without the thunder and lightning, Father God, that, that must accompany preaching. But I pray that I have that, Father. And I pray, Father God, that more than anything else, that what I pray, that I, what I preached tonight, Father God, was your will and therefore convict someone, Father. I pray for conviction. I pray, Father God, that someone that within the sound of my voice, Father God, could hear what was being preached tonight and would surrender themselves to it. We love you, God. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.